And with all that talking, I'm sure some of you planned a picnic too, right? So we figure 9 a.m. Uh, by 10, 10, 30, 11, we should, of course, Adam's preaching, so maybe 12 or, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> You'd be able to have a picnic by the afternoon. Okay, with that said, now I'm ready to jump into Practical Atheist. I apologize, guys back there. Thanks for flexing with me. Thanks, everyone. I uh, didn't hit that transition very well. Practical Atheist, here's where we're at. Um, talking really about what it really means to be a Christian in reality. Uh, We're on page 17. If you have your reading plan, a place to take notes there. If you don't have one, what this is, this is a journal where you have readings that go right along with the message throughout the week, a place to write down and continue to learn. They're free for yours. They're out there. Or there's also just straight reading plans. Maybe you're not a person who journals and writes, so grab a reading plan, stick it in your Bible, and follow along. But Practo Atheist, um, it's also a series. just want to give a disclaimer. Craig Groeschel, a pastor at Life Church. He's in Oklahoma City, and they have churches all over the world, actually, one of the largest churches in the world, uh, preached this message in 2007, this series. We are borrowing it with permission, and we've made it our own. Just want to give that disclaimer. So what I share this morning will sound similar to some of the things you would hear Craig say, but it's also our own, and we've made it our own and my own. And um, so just want to give that disclaimer. Also, that sermon series that he preached then was turned into a book uh, that was called uh, the Christian Atheist, and our adult education is going to be working through that book this fall. So I want to give a plug for that. If this series has challenged you, um, you might want to jump into that. With that said, let me see a show of hands to get us moving. How many of you, I wasn't going to see a show of hands, but I'm like, there might be one or two. because My hunch is that none of you this is true. This is my hunch, that none of you this is true for. Might be one or two. How many of you enjoy throwing up? Is there anyone here? So my hunch is right. 100% of us do not like throwing up. I hate throwing up. I cannot stand it. Matter of fact, I would label myself as a sympathy hurler. (laughs) Do you you know what a sympathy hurler is? If one of you would happen to be in this general vicinity this morning and you decided to throw up, I would probably join right in with you. (laughs) Last summer... You say, oh, my word, he can't possibly going to tell a story about this. Last summer, <laughs> last summer, we're on a drive to um, upstate Michigan, I mean, way up in Michigan, to see Tanya's family. And it was a long drive. We broke it into two days. And so the two-day drive, we end up eating things, you know, and when you're on a trip, the diet just kind of goes right out the window. So we're eating McDonald's and all kinds of wonderful, I think it's incredible, uh, but I know others say, that's not really good for you. Not. So we're driving and t- the, the tired, sleepies, lethargic, bleh, kind of set in. And so uh, at that point, Tanya says to me, my wife says, why don't you rest and I'll drive a little bit. I say, okay, that's cool. So I move into the passenger seat and I'm gone. I mean, I think I'm even having dreams at this point. I mean, it is, I am out cold. And suddenly I feel the car coming to a quick stop. So I'm coming to, and as my eyes are opening up, my senses hit me. And I'm like, get out of the car now. And I throw the door open to get out because our youngest in the back seat had shared with her mommy while she was driving, mommy, I need to throw up. And she's eating things she didn't want. And so bless her heart, she has a book bag there and all her travel stuff. And she's in the book bag. All of the kids in the car are like, oh, my word, Ava threw up. This is so terrible. And they're all freaking out. I'm over on the side of the road just going, okay, don't throw up, don't throw up, don't throw up. <laughs> I'm a sympathy hurler. Now, we don't like to throw up, and I would even say some of you are probably disturbed that I even shared that story, right? <laughs> like, what in the world? <laughs> now, quick transition. Here's where we're going this morning. 
There is a passage in the scriptures that talks about God throwing up. Did you know that? I mean, we're going to look at it this morning. It's like it says that God vomited or God spit is actually the, some of you will um, uh, see it in in your English translations, but the word is literally he vomited. So we're going to talk about what makes God vomit. What makes him that sick to the stomach that he's just going to, and does it, am I a sympathy hurler in those areas? What we're talking about as a practical atheist, to kind of recap where we were at last week, Craig Rochelle's definition is this. Practical atheist is someone who believes in God but lives as if he doesn't exist. That's a practical atheist. So 90 plus percent, if depending on which polls you look at and, and watch, 90, 80 to 90 percent of people in America say, I believe in God. But then we look around and we say, well, what does that really mean? Because <laughs> I see some things that I'm not sure if I'd categorize that as belief in God. So practical atheist. Uh, a verse that kind of runs along with this is Isaiah 29, 13. You saw the one come across the screen from 2 Timothy that we read last week and looked at. One I'd throw up this week would be this, Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So they're, they're praising God. They're talking the God talk, but their hearts are far. As a matter of fact, it goes on to say their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. So they don't even know what I expect of them in worship. They're just doing what other men and women have told them to do. Uh, but their hearts are so far from me. Last week, we talked about the reality of a practical atheist believes in God but doesn't fear him. And we talked about what does it really mean to fear God? This morning we're going to talk about the practical atheist says, I believe in God, but you know what? (laughs) Don't go overboard. Let's not get all fanatical. Let's not get all of this born-again thing. I mean, yeah, let's just kind of try and fit in. Let's really go out into our culture and and kind of blend in and be a part of our culture. And and let's talk about God, but Jesus? You ever notice in our culture you bring Jesus up, the conversation shifts, but you can talk about God. So let's let's just work out into our culture. So we'll talk about this morning. Now, to do that, I want to look, if you turn with me, to Revelation chapter 3. Now, if you are new to the Bible, Revelation chapter 3 is an easy one to find. So this, you're lucky this morning. Uh, don't need to dig too deep through the uh, table contents. But in the New Testament, which is the writings that would be after Jesus' life, it's the very last uh, chapter or book or letter, uh, the, the reference different ways. Revelation chapter 3. Now, where we're at here in Revelation chapter 3, what's taking place is um, this is an apocalyptic writing. John is his name who wrote it, and he is old. He's getting close to death, and Jesus shows up in a vision and says, John, I want you to tell the churches, I want you to tell Christians what is going to come. So most of us know the book of Revelation as this kind of this mystical, what's yet to come, what's God going to do in the world is, I mean, we, we get all this, all this destruction and, and new heaven and new earth and fire and hell, and, and that's kind of what we think of Revelation. But before the book starts, it starts out with speaking to seven churches. These are seven, when you go back in history, these were first century churches, and God says, I got a message. Before you see who I am, I got a message for you. Now, of the seven churches, six of them, there is something positive to be said for. So six of the churches, God says, here's what's good about you, and then he gives the correction. Okay, I love this. Address this. Six of them. The one that he doesn't have a single positive word for is the one we're looking at this morning, Laodicea. 
Now, Laodicea, in archaeologists and historians, and you, you guys you can go and Google this and look at all kinds of great resources out there today, but in the first century, um, roughly 35 years before this letter would have been written, Laodicea was completely leveled by an earthquake. I mean, the, the city was just demolished across the board, nothing left. Now, the city happens to be an incredibly wealthy city, and we're actually going to read about some of that here in, in, in the text. Very wealthy city, so what they do is they kind of springed into action, and they take all this wealth and rebuild the city, and they rebuild it probably faster than what would have normally been able to be done in the first century. So they rebuild this city, and what the archaeologists discovered, what they rebuilt, they rebuilt theaters. They found a lot of theaters around town. In other words, where plays and let's come together to be entertained, and they found stadiums where there would have been gladiatorial or, or um, Olympic-type events that would have been taking place. There are also a significant number of large, very large for the first century, shopping centers, places where people would have come together, kind of like we think of our malls, more of an open-air place, market where people come to experience exchange goods. There were public baths, something we don't think public baths. That's strange. But the city had these hot springs that kind of came up out of the ground and boiled up. And so they created these beautiful, ornate, gold-trimmed public baths. So as I think about this, it's kind of like what my mind would think about Las Vegas. It's kind of sprung up overnight, right in the middle of the desert, and there's lots to do. Beautiful place when you look at it from a distance, but there's lots to do there. So that's kind of Laodicea. Now, with that said, let's work through what God, what Jesus has to say to Laodicea. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. That's reference to Jesus Christ himself. So these are his words to this church. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, if you had the NIV Bible and you read it there with me, I know your what? Deeds. I know your deeds. In other words, listen, I know what you say. I know what you're speaking. I know when you come to church to worship what's coming out of your mouth, but I know your deeds. I see your life. And I would prefer that you would either be hot or cold. You're neither. Kind of like you ever heard the term riding the fence, I'm going to be close to the line as I can without really crossing. They're kind of hanging out in the middle. And please hear this. God actually says, I would rather you, if you're not hot, I would prefer you just to be cold. It's more dangerous to sit in the middle. His message is, listen, if you're not all in, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I wish you would just be honest with the people around you and just go be cold. It's my message to, to people here. Be cold. If you're not hot, be cold. Don't play the game. Don't come to your small group. Don't come to church. Don't hang out with your youth, friends, and your, your neighbors, and just, and just kind of play the game. But then you know deep in your heart, and you know what you're living all week long, and you're, you're off somewhere else. Just be cold. Be honest. Now, I think it's interesting, then, as you continue reading, look at this. Look at the reaction God has here. So, because you are, now here's where we get a word that gets thrown around a lot. You say, where does this word go? This is actually where it comes from in the scriptures. So, because you are, some of you have the NIV Bibles, what's it say? Lukewarm. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, lukewarm. It's what I would call an oxymoron. You guys know what an oxymoron is? I'm sure our students are on stage with an oxymoron is. It's not what you call your spouse in the middle of a fight. 
Not a good idea. Oxymoron, it's a figure of speech. It's two separate things that you put together to kind of create emphasis. So I might say, man, you're pretty ugly. Did you just compliment me or did you, I mean, what is pretty ugly? Or you might say, hey, let's go to dinner tonight and get some boneless ribs. Or maybe you say, um, I listen to soft rock. What is soft rock? Or maybe for the Apple lovers in the room, the iPhones and your Apple, I mean, you guys are fanatical and crazy. And you might say, Microsoft works. Let it sit in, I know. I'm sorry, I'm not a comedian. I tried. So it's an oxymoron. Lukewarm Christian is equally kind of an oxymoron. You say, how does it work together? And what it, if you look at this passage, Jesus says, listen, if you're a disciple of me, that means you die to self and live wholly unto me. What does it really mean to be lukewarm? And it says it causes God to want to, or Jesus to want to vomit, spit. Now you can see the Greek word. Some of you know the word emit. I mean, there, there you see that you see it right in there. Spew spit, or literally vomit. Go to any Greek dictionary, you'll find that definition for this word. Now, this is strong words. God says, I want to absolutely vomit. And what's he want to vomit? He says, I want to spit you. This isn't just like this, this, this experience of you living makes me want to vomit. He's like, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. You say, wow, that's tough stuff. Now, the question gets asked, what is a lukewarm Christian? The term is used here, but the text doesn't specifically spell out. So I'm going to borrow uh, Craig's and in your bulletin, because I don't have time to hit all 10 of these in depth, but I'm going to mention them. But in your bulletin, uh, you'll see at the bottom in the sermon section, there they are. Uh, So I'm going to just draw them to you. There's some blanks here. You can fill it in. But here is kind of his definition, and I think you could probably add to this. Okay, this may be just a list to get you started. Maybe you could sit down in your small group or your family this week and Maybe even add 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 to the list. But thing number one, a lukewarm Christian craves acceptance from people more than acceptance from God. So what a lukewarm Christian is most concerned about is what do you think about me? What do they think about me? It deeply sways their opinion. They basically kind of want to fit in. They want to go with what's popular. Let's consider what the polls say. Let's consider what's politically correct. I don't want to rock the boat. I I want ultimately, instead of living to the audience of one, I want to fit in. It's a lukewarm Christian. Because Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, he literally says, listen, woe to you when all men and women speak good of you. If all people in your life are singing your praises, Jesus literally says, you have a problem. But today, most Christians think that's the ideal. Every person in my life should be praising me and saying, man, there's a good guy. Adam is a cool dude. But Jesus literally says, if that's happening, you're probably not following me wholeheartedly. Uh, The second thing I think um, that I, I like is they rarely share their faith in Christ. But it's scary to think about Jesus says in Mark chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 10, if you do not confess and profess me to others, I will not talk about you to God. You say, what? Does the scriptures really teach that? Yes. So it's not, I don't know where we've gotten this belief that I don't need to share it, I just go out and live it. That's not biblical. The scriptures do not teach us that. 
It says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's both a personal commission and a corporate church-wide commission. Now, to do that, we must, how does a person come to know Jesus? They confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. How can they confess unless they hear the words? My question would be, ask this. I want this list. I want us to challenge us. I want us to really push in. When is the last time you personally told someone in your life about Jesus? And what I find in a room like this of a bunch of Christian people, you know what the answer typically is? Um... I'm not sure. Well, you're not sure because you've probably been a long time. So, it can hurt. Second one, third one. A lukewarm Christian does whatever it takes to alleviate their guilt. This almost becomes an art form. I mean, it's like 2 Corinthians says there are two types of sorrow. The one sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance, what repentance is, is not only just turning from my sin, but I'm actually turning to the creator God of the universe to live in relationship with him and embrace him with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lukewarm Christians, it's like, well, I don't feel good. I did something bad. I know I don't feel good. There's something turning inside of me, and I'm going to do anything with I can so I feel better whether it's go to church and give money or whether it's get passive aggressive with others in my life or whether it's all kinds of stuff that we do to try and push those feelings away, live as a victim and all kinds of stuff to try and say, I'm okay. And it's anything but just turning and falling on our knees before the creator God of the universe in repentance. The fourth one, lukewarm Christians think more about life on earth than eternity in heaven. This is a big one. This one, I think, hits Laodicea square. This one and a couple others. You're gonna, we're going to see it a little further in the passage. I think this one is probably the heart of Laodicea. Now, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says with his own mouth, you cannot, Adam Nagel, you cannot serve both God and money. It's interesting to me that he picks out money and sets it up against God because money is the idol. It captures our heart. We worship it. And God says you can't do both. If you're living for me or you're living for your paycheck, what's it going to be? And then he goes on in that same context to say, do not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough worries of its own. He says, I will take, it's, it's this gracious plea of love. He says, I will take care of you. Same as I take care of the birds, I will take care of you. But you worry and you're so anxious because you're living for this stuff. Then he says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek it first. And then this stuff, the stuff of the earth will come along. But when you ask most of us in this room to really be honest, let's sit in your small group and say, what have you worried about this week? What you're going to hear a lot of talk about is, i got to pay the electric bill. My kids are getting braces. What, what, what should I do with my hair? Should I change a color? Should I cut it shorter? How about these? Does, what, should I wear this? Should I wear that? i, I got to go do some more shopping. Let's remodel the house. What would be wise to do with remodeling the house? Should we do this? Should we do that? What should I do with the tax return money? What should I do with my car? Man, I'm worried about my car not getting me because my car's dying. Or I'm, and on and on it goes. And the question gets asked, Adam, talking to me, <laughs> How much anxiety do you have over pursuing the kingdom of God? Are you chasing it down? 
Again, lukewarm Christians, they're more concerned than here and now. They don't understand 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 says, we are aliens, we're strangers, we shouldn't feel at home here. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11 that the great heroes, the people we look to and say, wow, these are, these are people who God says, I gave you a promise, and they lived, and they never saw the promise come true, but they continued to worship God because they knew I have a home in heaven, and I can't wait to fall into my Savior's arms when I get there because I'm living for him. So again, lukewarm Christians, I think, are a little more concerned about the here and the now than what is coming. Number five, lukewarm Christians gauge their morality by comparing to others. Now, Jesus, where this comes from is Jesus tells this incredibly famous story. You've probably heard it. It's in a worship room like this, a setting where people are coming to worship God, and there's a religious leader that shows up, and he says, the religious leader, Jesus gives a window into his heart. He's worshiping God by saying, God, I am, thank you for making me so good. I'm such a great person. He's talking about how wonderful he is, and then loving God because of how good he is. And Jesus says, that guy didn't get it. Actually, look over here in the corner. Sitting over here in the corner is someone who's a notorious sinner. And that notorious sinner is there beating their chest. Because all the notorious sinner is doing is focused on the creator God of the universe and understanding I fall short from him. And he's weeping and crying. And he's moved to worship. But what happens with lukewarm Christians, we think, well, look at them. (laughs) I'm... I don't do that. Or look what the polls say. Homosexuality, the polls say, is uh, Christians are okay with it, so I should be okay with it. Let's embrace it. That's lukewarm Christianity at its finest. We're so concerned with what's in and No, measure your holiness against the standard of the creator God of the universe, not against one another and what the polls say and what other people think. Number six, lukewarm Christians want to be saved from the penalty of sin without changing their lives. So in other words, God, get me to heaven. Take away the crud in my life. I don't want it, but change my life. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, it's not enough just to be faithful. He says you must be fruitful. If you're not bearing fruit, Jesus says let's step back and challenge the roots of the tree because you may not be the apple tree that you think you are because there's no apples hanging on your branches. Number seven, Lukewarm Christians only turn to God when they are in a bind. And this one I would say, it's kind of like you have your God tool. We all have our toolbox to get through life. Most of us do. We have the things in life that we use to be successful, to get us through, to, to win the day, to help us through a bind. And a lot of times, God becomes another tool in the toolbox. And generally, that tool gets brought out of the toolbox when, okay, I'm in trouble. Things aren't good. I'm in a bind. Okay, let's see. Oh, here's the God tool. I'm going to bring the God tool out now and use the God tool. No, God says, I want all of you all the time, not just when you're in trouble. Number eight, lukewarm Christians give whenever it doesn't hinder their standard of living. (laughs) I'm going to be real candid. Last year on my taxes, when the accountant turned it back to me, and I looked at the sheet, and I saw the percentage that I gave compared to the percentage of what I made, I was cut to the core. I did not give 10%. I was well short of that. The pastor of a church. Now, that's something I put square in mind, not because I got to do the right thing, but because I'm like, God, I love you. And I'm going to declare that to you. So I, we said, you know what, this year we're going to get that percentage up. But again, what I find is, you know why I wasn't giving? Because life was getting hard, expensive. The economy was tough. And I justify it with, well, 
I got to take care of this, or we got to do that, or we have to do this. And God says, no. He tells a story about a widow who comes to give money, and they're all watching, and there's all these people dropping these coins in the box. Clink, 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 clink. And everyone's like, whoa, look at that. Whoa, look at that. And then Jesus sees the widow, and he points to the disciples, look at the widow, and he says, hey, do you see her? She just dropped one coin in there, and that one coin was all she had to live on. That is faith. That is love of God. And he elevates that and says, way to go. Now, see, some of us, I think, say, whoa, look at all they gave. But you know what? Look at all they made. Who cares what they gave? What are they making? How are they living? What are they willing to live without? Why do they live with all that stuff? Again, stuff's not bad. Stuff's not wrong. But God says, I want your heart. And money is oftentimes one of the greatest revealers of where our heart is, who we trust, who we run after. Number nine, lukewarm Christians in Scripture, I think you, as you study the Scriptures, are not much different from the rest of the world. In John 15, 16, and 17, Jesus clearly says, I'm going to leave you in the world, but I don't want you to be of the world. I'm leaving you here to reach the world. And matter of fact, he says in John 15, don't be surprised that the world is going to hate you. Let me ask you a question. Does the world hate you? Does it? My answer is no. I coach football. I'm hanging out with people all week long that don't go to church. They think I'm a pretty cool guy, and I work really hard to help them think I'm a cool guy. But there comes a point where am I different? But I find in statistics, when there's statistics, we divorce the same, we cuss the same, we have the same addictions. We don't look a lot different. Now, I've been known to say in the past, at times, we're all hypocrites, all of us in this room. But man, when I look across the board and begin to realize, my goodness, that, well, are we any different? Number 10, I think, sums up the entire list. Lukewarm Christians want the benefit of what Christ did without conforming to who he is. In other words, they're saying, give me the gifts Give me the gift of forgiveness. Give me the gift of grace. Give me the gift of blessing. Give me the gift of all life and life to the full. Give me the gifts. The scriptures are very clear. Scriptures talk about those things. But you know what? I don't want the giver. I'm going to worship the gifts. I'm not so sure I really want to worship the giver. I think this sums up the entire list of just all in. Now, what God says is this makes me want to vomit. He doesn't just say this behavior makes me sick. He says, I literally want to vomit you if you're in this position out of my mouth. Now, I want to push in and ask us to really do a gut check in a minute. Before I do that, I want to just put a caution out there. Please hear this from my heart. Last night when I finished practicing, I preached this, I preached my messages probably four, five, six times some weeks until I actually get on stage here and preach it with people in the room. And every Saturday night, I do it. And um, last night, I did it again. And I, I usually go into a closed room, coming out. And my wife just says, hey, are you ready? And I said, no. Real quick, no. Wasn't real friendly. Wasn't real, just wasn't, just wasn't mean. It just was like, no. I don't want to preach this message today. Here's why. First thing. It's not just because it's hard. Because I wonder if it's almost a little unfair. This is a journey that the elders actually kind of, I was already kind of doing some work. And then the elders said uh, last March, when they laid these, this sermon series was beginning to, in its processing, in its infant planning stages way back in March. 
And Chris and I then, after the other, said, let's talk about this subject. Chris and I then went to work to say, what is out there that people have already talked about? And what could we talk about? And, and I just began to think and ask a lot of questions of myself. And here's the questions I've been asking. So in other words, what I'm saying is, is it fair to hit someone in 30 or 40 minutes with something that's been working in me for six months, eight months, nine months? So I, I'm a little tenuous to just step in and really hit you guys hard because I'm like, it's taken me six, seven, eight months to get to the place where I'm beginning to see some of this. But through my journey, I began to ask the question. Here's the question that was really plaguing me. Okay, I hit my four-year anniversary at Bethany Grace Fellowship as the senior pastor, my first time as a senior pastor. So we can ask the question, how's it going? I think, it's just, I think it's, that's a very important step to just reflect what's going on. As I began to reflect, I began to ask a lot of questions, not just about this church, just about Christianity, because I stepped into ministry with a clear vision of making disciples. So I asked the question, Adam, are you making disciples? People far from God growing up now in faith in Jesus. I asked the question, are we making disciples? And I began to ask the question, is Western Christianity, what we call church today, really church? The resurrection power of Jesus Christ that transforms a broken, dead life and brings, brings forth life from what was once dead. Is that what, what is this thing called Western? And then, I have this Achilles injury, and it's been dark, and I'm getting into counseling to process why has it been so dark and incredibly painful and hard from a soul gut level, not just the physical pain. That's, that comes and goes. That's fine. But in the midst of laying on my back, one of you handed me a real gift, served me by giving me a book called The Insanity of God. And I began to read that book, and the journey began to unfold because those questions are wrestled. That book is all about a missionary who's lived in the parts of the world where for me to do what I'm doing this morning and you to gather here with me this morning means certain death, jail, or persecution. And he began to wrestle with, in that book, it's a phenomenal book. If you're a reader, I'd encourage you to read it. He begins to wrestle with, is the Western church, is the Western church alive with the resurrection of Jesus? What does faith in Jesus really look like? And then something else begins to happen as I was doing my reflection is um, I learned something. I think most of you knew this. I think I knew this beforehand, but I learned it through this, is pastors are a very popular breed to be talked about. Now, I knew that going in. But when it starts to happen to you and you hear things come back to you, which generally it does, Ecclesiastes says the birdie carries what's been talked about on the wind back to the leader. So I've heard some things over the years and even this year. And it hurts. Let's be very candid. It hurts deeply. And I've got to be the strong leader. But I'm thinking, they're not happy. Be the strong leader. Do what God's called you to do, but they're not happy. So what I began to realize what was happening in my heart is I was becoming a part-time Christian, and a full-time pastor. See, how's that possible? That's possible, very possible. And so I want us to do the hard work. Maybe this morning you can't do all the work, but this morning I'm asking you to start the work, to start the process and journey with me. It's not easy and it's not fun, but walk with me. It may be a year or two of unpacking 
But maybe for you, you're saying, well, I'm not a pastor, but maybe for you, you've become a full-time mom and a part-time follower of Jesus. In other words, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I'll even, uh, yeah, but maybe for you, you're a full-time business leader. I mean, what is it? Put yours in the blank there, and is it true of you? And then look at the list. Look at that list of 10 things. And for me, that first one popped right off the list. I'm like, my goodness, Adam, you're playing to the tune of what someone else wants. You're not listening to the audience of one and what God has called you to do. And you've lived in fear and anxiety over that. Now, so that's one concern. Here's the second concern. I went back in my notes, and I used to preach regularly on this passage, at least twice a year when I was a youth pastor. And my greatest fear, and I've repented of this, and I hope never to do it again to the day I go to my grave. My greatest fear is when I would preach this in the past, I was preaching a pile of legalism. I was tickling people's ears. Yes, I was saying hard things, but don't we love to hear, you can do it. Work harder. Be disciplined. You can do it. That's all I was doing. Yes, I believed in Jesus. Yes, I was calling people to believe in Jesus and and have life in Jesus, but I wasn't laying at the root of all of life, Jesus, period. And from that root springs life and fruit. And if there is no fruit, it's because at the root there is a problem. And you're not receiving everything and your sustenance and all that you are and all that you will be from Jesus, period. And so what I would say, and I would preach these messages to our teens, and I'd say, listen, be committed, be all in. And I'd, I'd talk about God wants to vomit you out of your mouth. And, and I'd say, I don't want to do that ever again. I don't, want to, I don't want to put a truckload more guilt on a number of Christians that already have too big a problem dealing with guilt. Because they don't understand life is Jesus, period. I don't want genuine Christians to leave like I think they used to leave when I preach this and think, man, am I even a Christian? Do I even know Jesus? You know what? If you've professed faith in Christ and right now you have something stirring in your heart, you're a Christian. It's called the Spirit of God speaking to you. The problem is some of us haven't been very good at listening. I don't want people to walk out here saying, am I even a Christian? I don't want that. The scriptures declare that you can know for certain that you have eternal life. They declare that. I also don't want you to think Christianity is this neat little cleaned up box of a life. No. One of my favorite verses in scripture to blow that one out of the water is Mark chapter 9. A dad who loves his son comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I hear that you can heal. I want the gift of healing Now, Jesus looks back at him and says, do you believe? Do you have faith in me? In other words, do you want me or do you just want your son to be healed? And look at the dad's response. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. One of my favorite verses in all scripture. So I don't walk out of here this morning. Please don't walk out of here this morning and think, oh, well, the Christian life is this little box cleaned up. I do this. No. It is okay to be messy. It is okay to wrestle. Growth is not a nice little clean checkbox thing in life. It is a trajectory. You got to ask, okay, Adam, where are you today versus where you were 5, 10, 15 years ago? Ours is a trajectory of growth and wrestling and, and being honest. Next thing I'd say is this, and then I want to really push in. I'm giving this to, just as warnings to say, listen, we need to push in, but I want to just throw one. Next thing I'm going to say is this. One of my other fears is in preaching messages like this is what I have a tendency to do is call you to live to your potential, not your calling. God calls that Adam, that's sin. Don't lay that on people that listen to you preach. 
1 Corinthians 7, one of, one of my favorite passages in Scripture about this subject, Paul, Paul the writer says, hey, listen, um, I would like you to remain single because if you remain single, you can live to your potential. You can do all kinds of things. Why can you do all kinds of things? Because he says your mind isn't wrapped up with earthly things. And he defines earthly things as a spouse and children. Good things, but when you have spouse and kids, there are a certain level of things that you just aren't going to get done. Because I've got four kids and because I have a wife and I love them and I want and I'm called to them. I am called to be a husband. I'm called to be a, um, a father. Because I'm called to that, there's certain things that I will not get done. Because I'm a pastor of a church and God has called me to that, there are certain things that I cannot do. And so my great fear is, is that in the Christian community, we are called, um, I, I want to say do something. You don't need to do everything. You know, I, I love, I absolutely love, 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 love the sanctity of life movement and, and social justice that's sprung up over the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years of Christianity. But when at times when I've gone and sat in those circles, they sound like, here's what the message I hear from them at times. If you're not adopting kids, or do you even know Jesus? Now, not all do that. I'm not, don't hear characterize at all, but I want to say, no, you know what? We're not all called to adopt kids. What are you called to and make sure you're living to your calling? Same as we're not all called to be pastors. We're not all called to be missionaries. We're not all called to have four kids. We're not all called to have six kids. We're not all, what are you called to do? So it's my other concern is at times when we preach this stuff, people walk out thinking, oh my word, I've got to do so much more. Well, you might need to do more, but make sure you're doing more towards your calling, not just heaping more guilt on of, I got to go to that and trying to get to your potential. You're just going to destroy your kids your spouse, and everyone else in your life around it because you're, you're never going to get there. Now, with that said, with that said, let's push in. Hopefully you hear that. I, my heart is that you embrace that. Now I want to drive in because I, I do think, though, we need to do a gut check. Okay, with all that said, I do think we need to do a gut check. Look at the rest of this, this passage, and I want to ask the question, how did they get lukewarm? You know how they did it? They got rich. Look at verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. He's saying of them, hey, listen, you guys say that I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in a fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Whoa. He says, you guys think you got it all together. But he says, quite the opposite. You guys are, you guys are a wretched bunch. You know, this, this echoes back to me what Jesus says about when the rich young ruler comes to him. In Mark chapter 10, there's this guy. He's good looking probably. He's, he's, he's young. He's wealthy. He's, got, he's incredibly moral. It says he has obeyed all of the commandments. He says it to Jesus, and Jesus does not disagree with him. But then he asks this question, how do I get in? How do I have eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, here's what you got to do. Go sell everything and then come follow me. I can't do that. So he turns, at the scriptures say, he turns and walks away sad. I think deep in his heart he knew what Jesus was saying. And then Jesus turns to his disciples. The disciples are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who can get saved then? Because he's hearing Jesus. And Jesus says, with, with man it's impossible. With God all things are possible. And he says, you know, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter eternal life. 
Now, I want to talk to this room because this entire room is rich. You say, no, I'm not. No, you are. We in America, the poorest in America, are in the top 3% of the world's wealthiest. Now, I know I hear the argument all the time, but we live in America, and it's the Western standard. It's the way I, need, I need this. To, yeah, we need X to survive. I get that. But even the poorest among us are consumed with these thoughts of, I can do it. I just need to get another job. I need to work harder. I can make more money. I can. It's like wealth begins to dilute our thinking. You think, I can do it. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Please hear the words of Jesus in Scripture. Or the wealthy have a very hard time coming to faith in Jesus. They're very self-sufficient. It's the same message he gave to his chosen people, the Jews, when they were coming into the promised land. And, and right before they get into the promised land, he says, okay, I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to lay this thing down. And one of the things he says to them, the very first thing he says is, when you get into this land flowing with milk and honey, rich, fertile soil, beautiful lands, magnificent things that you, you did not build, you inherit all this wealth, do not forget me, he says. Why? Because when we start to get our stuff, who do we forget? Jesus. So he says, you're rich. And what I wish, what I wish with all my heart is that we had glasses to look at one another, to look at ourselves like Jesus looks at us. See, most of us look at that little boy on the right and we're like, oh my goodness. Some of you are stirred. Some of you have seen pictures like that. That's why you support Compassion International or World Vision. You see a child who is not healthy No matter how you draw it up, not healthy, ribs exposed, extended stomach from starvation, skinny arms, flies attracted to their face, sunken eyeballs. You look at it and you say, that's not healthy. And you look at the little boy on the left and you say, there's a healthy child. It's a healthy kid. And what I fear is in our spiritual lives, most of us look at ourselves like the child on the left. And God, maybe in his, he has glasses that look very different. And he looks at us as we're the child on the right in our soul. He says, you guys are missing it. And I've said oftentimes, I wish I'd have glasses that I could put on and look inward at myself and say, God, what do you see? Do you see a rich, healthy man? Or do you see, look at the verses, look what he describes them. Or do you see someone, do you see someone who's wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? God, what do you see? Now, Wrap this thing up, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. If you're a Christian, his discipline of you is one of those loving things he can do because he will do anything within his power to make sure that you have him. For him not to give himself to you would be for him to hate you because he knows you. So he says, I'm going to discipline you. Now, we could cut the discipline off if you look at the next phrase. So be earnest and repent. What's repentance? Not just turning from, but turning towards, embracing the creator God of the universe. Now, verse 20, let me ask you this question. I come back to the kind of the thing I said earlier. Is it possible to even be a lukewarm Christian? Does it even exist? God says he wants to spit him out of your mouth. Does it even exist? Look at verse 20. It's a famous verse. Most of you have heard this verse. If you've grown up in church or been around church at any level, you've probably heard this verse. You've even sung this verse. This is verses in a number of songs, popular current songs and songs from our past. But it says this, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Then he wraps up, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. He was an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Here I am, verse 20, I stand at the door and I what? I'm going to ask you this question. Some of you know your Bible well, and you know that when you become a Christian, it teaches that the Holy Spirit seals you, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. So, it would go to reason. When you read this verse, you think, well, why, does you, why do you need to let him in if he's already in? My personal, this is my personal philosophy. Take it as Adam's words. I'm not... Quoting chapter in my personal philosophy is lukewarm Christians are probably not Christians at all. I think the message of the lukewarm Christian is hey, do you hear the knock? Let me come in. And if you look at the verse, there's something really striking about this verse. I say to Narak, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And what's he going to do when he gets there? What's he going to do? He's going to have dinner. What's that about? When you have someone over to your house, what do you do? Generally serve food. My wife and I went out on Friday night on a date, a good cheap date, trying to stick within our budget. We went to Moe's. I love Moe's. I love burritos. I love all that stuff. So we went up to Moe's up in Reading and had a great time. But when we sit down, we needed that time. But what are we doing at the table together? Why do you go out on a date and eat? What are you doing? You sit across the table, and some of you sit right beside. I think that's a little weird, those of you who do that. <laughs> it's your prerogative, you do it, but I, it's not my deal. I generally sit across the table, and I look at my wife where? In the eyes, and we connect. I think Jesus' message is, hey, let's sit down and have dinner. Let me look you in the eyes, and you look in my eyes, and let's get to know one another. That's what we're going to talk about next week, but let's get to know one another. Do you know me? See, my concern is in John chapter 3, when Jesus says, I've come into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But men love darkness, so they continue to hide. I think Jesus' message, listen, do you know that I love you? Do you know that I'm for you? Do you know that I paid a price for you that you cannot pay? Do you know that I bring you to the creator God in a way that you cannot bring yourself? Do you know that you can't do this on your own? Do you know that I've called you to come and find rest in me? Do you know what I'm doing is to say, extending my hand to say, walk with me. Come and find rest. Let's get to know one another. You don't need to fear my condemnation. What you need to do is be honest. And let's do some work together. Let me in. So I think some of you in this room are like maybe I was. I grew up in church. I professed faith at age five or six. I got baptized at eight or nine. And I didn't see a lick of life change until I was 19 years old in college. And what changed for me was when I began to sit down to the table and have dinner with Jesus and say, I want to get to know you. That's when life change happened. That's when fruit began to show up on my tree. That's when people could come by the apple tree and pick the apples and say, wow, okay, he's producing some fruit. It was when I got sat down to the table, answered the knock, and had dinner. 
So I want to challenge some of you maybe to do that for the very first time. Others of you, I'm, I'm convinced you've done it, but you've not been sitting down at the table. You've been hanging out in the kitchen or the living room or up in your bedroom in a corner trying to stay. Hey, I don't want to go anywhere near that dining room with Jesus. Maybe you need to get back in the dining room and sit down and get to know, reacquaint yourself with Jesus. And just say, you know what? I need to get to know you. That letter we signed last week, without limits or conditions, I'm going to get to know you and you lead me and I'm going to follow. How we're going to end this service this morning is we normally end and we sing a song and we, and we do our offering and that's all cool. We're going to do that again. Uh, but I want to just give you time to pray and to think. Again, it's been months of doing some work in my heart and I'm still doing that work. I'm not completed yet. So I want to give you just at least two minutes of quiet and stillness to listen to God and answer the knock in your heart. And then we're going to sing a song. It's actually an old song. It's actually a hymn. It's... Um, my Jesus, I love thee. We're going to sing that song. And here, I want to give you an opportunity. I believe with all my heart, as I was praying and working on this this week, I believe there's some of you in this room that are just struggling. And I want to ask you, just take an honest step. I'm going to ask the elders to come up, and they're just going to sit on these front benches and just come forward for prayer. It's not an altar call. It's, not, it's just saying, come out and say, you know what? You don't need to tell them what you need prayer for. If you want to, that's great. But just come up and say, I'm in need of prayer. Will you pray for me? So again, they're going to be up here during, that, during all the music. You can come on up. And then during the second song, the offering will be taken and or received and give you time to put your tear off in. Again, I hope you worship and really think of the, we picked this, that closing song with, with strong intentionality to say, let's go out in this week and say, I, I am surrendered to Jesus and I am victorious. So again, I want to give you a time of silence and just to sit and reflect. And I'm going to pray for us and then we'll move into our singing. God, thank you for Jesus. God, I know right now our service is normally ended and we're heading home in our cars. And, and God, just help us. I know some of us are kind of anxious and want to get going, but help us to just sit still and listen and take in what you have to say to us. God, I know right now there have been a number of people talking to you, and I trust um, just being honest. God, would you just reassure them of your love, even through this singing, would you reassure them of your love and your grace and your mercy And that you've not come to condemn, but you've come to bring salvation. You've come to give rest. You've come to lead. And God, you've come to ask us to die to self and to surrender to you as Lord of our life. Help us to do that. Help us to lay aside the anxieties and the fears and the worries of our finances, of our morality, and all the other stuff that kind of begins to creep into our heart and help us just to make sure that first and foremost, we're a full-time follower of Jesus. God, I just pray for those right now that are hurting, that are struggling in that relationship with you. God, I pray that this week can just begin to start the work. We need to reach out to help from me or one of our elders or a counselor and just start the work of saying, okay, I want to sit down at the table with Jesus and look eyeball to eyeball and let's get real and let's get honest because I understand if I'm reading the scriptures right that God doesn't like me so much when I'm trying to live in two worlds makes him want to vomit and God I sense with all my heart that those in this room that are Christians they want that relationship and genuine so God honor that sincere heart and pursuit 
And may they know that they're loved. And may they experience the life that you promise in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.